If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will break down the absolutely insane political conventions with sports media critic Richard Deitch. And we will go deep on an even more insane Chinese basketball movie, with Dwight Howard and Carmelo Anthony, which is a lot like Tron if Tron had five minutes of NBA highlights in between (laughs) every scene. We'll also slam some hammers, give you some distractions, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining me in the studio this week, a fresh-faced sports media strategist who has worked for the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands, it's Adam Millard. Adam, how are you today, man? You know, I'm doing pretty good. Work's busy, but here we are with our distraction. Is this a distraction, technically? Just this not is definitely sports? a distraction. Well, no one listens, so just for <laughs> us, you know? Yeah. True. <laughs> also Let's with make us, another video. Yes. Also with us. In our Brooklyn Bureau, our Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, how's life in New York this week? There's a heat dome that has settled over New York, and so it is hot. Uh, We go to the Rockaways, the beach out in Queens that was immortalized by the Ramones in Rockaway Beach to cool off with the kitties. So we we went out there yesterday. The heat dome. Well, not with us tonight. Our producer, Joe Reed, who is about to get fired since we now realize we don't need him to do the hard work of pushing record. Joe, <laughs> how you doing? Joe sounds about the same now as <laughs> yeah, he does right. most. We could, we could just lie and say he's here the way that he sometimes edits in the shout outs after Adam leaves the room. All right, guys, uh, we got a busy show. We're going to get right into it. So before we do, uh, if you listen, if you're a beautiful and unique spark pony who makes time for Just Not Sports week in, week out, you know that we don't just invite people on the show. We don't send them emails. We slam the hammer on them publicly because they've expressed an interest in something and therefore they need to come on Just Not Sports and talk about it. So, Adam, who are you going to slam the hammer to this week? So, I had the privilege of seeing my first UFC event ever live over the weekend, UFC Fight Night in Chicago. There's a local fighter, female fighter named Felice Herrig, and I hope I'm saying her name correctly. Um, but she took some time off, a considerable amount of time due to depression and anxiety issues. Um, she ended up coming back and winning this fight via rear naked choke, uh, using excellent jujitsu to get locked in the submission. But I am curious to hear more about her journey. Um, from the reading I've done about her, she'd wake up 15 to 20 times per night because of her anxiety and depression and impacted her life in a really negative way. And obviously, uh, doing that and becoming a uh, being a full time fighter where you're putting your life at risk every time you get in the ring uh, haven't meshed and so she's managed to work her way back um, into the octagon and would like to talk to her about the strength that it took to get there. Uh, I don't want to talk to her about the rear naked rear naked choke. I'll it show sounds it. horrifying. I'll show you. I'll show you. Later. Please don't. Yeah. That's Please right. never it's not show as bad me. As it sounds. <laughs> uh, good one. Okay, Gareth. 
Who do you want to slam the hammer to? Uh, my hammer this week, I have talked on this show uh, when we talked about Bill Walton, about my love for the Grateful Dead. Uh, I wore my Owlsley belt buckle to the Cleos a couple weeks ago. Uh, I love that band. And uh, next week is Jerry Week, as it is affectionately known. Jerry Garcia was born on August 1st, 1942, and he died on August 9th, 1995. So it is a week for those in the Grateful Dead world to set aside and listen to a lot of their music. And during this time, Warren Haynes, formerly of the Allman Brothers, will be playing a Jerry Garcia Symphony at Red Rocks outside Denver, and he will be playing for the first time publicly since Garcia's last show on July 9th, 1995, Jerry's guitar known as Tiger, with a Tiger inlay in it. And this was partially, according to an article I read today, uh, one of the people that helped make all this happen was Jake Peavy of the San Francisco Giants, Ah, who... hmm is a huge deadhead. The guitar is actually owned by Jim Irsay, owner of the Indianapolis Colts, who has a lot of rock memorabilia. And there were pictures circulating today of Jake Peavy handling the guitar. He apparently, I had seen his name around the Fairly Well concerts last summer in Chicago. So my hammer is to Jake Peavy to come on and talk about two things, the Grateful Dead and owning a duck boat. Because if he's coming on this show, we're definitely asking him about that. All right, my guy, mine's going to be pretty simple, guys. Nicole Auerbach, writer, sports writer for USA Today. She covers the Olympics. She's going to Rio. Saw her on Twitter uh, recently talking about herself as a documentary nerd. Well, I am a huge documentary nerd. So I'm just going to throw it down. We'll talk any documentaries you want. You want to go Fog of War? You want to go sports? You want to go 30 for 30? You want to go HBO? You want to go Game of Honor, Gareth? Nope. He made Game of Honor, in case you didn't know, Adam. <laughs> no, I didn't know. You would have no way of knowing, since he did I not take that. Game of Honor. Pete Radovich was the best. <laughs> you made it, Gareth. According to our lore, you made it. Right. Um, anyway, uh, whatever documentary she wants to talk about, I can go deep. I can even talk about My Brother's Keeper, which is like where these weird dudes from Appalachia like may or may not have killed someone and or slept with each other, these brothers. Don't I don't recommend watching that. I also don't recommend watching <laughs> Dear Zachary. Have you guys heard of that? No, explain. Ugh. It's yeah, yeah that yeah. was it. A huge like just uh, like a a punch to the stomach. That for was like the most an hour movie and then ever. a kick to the balls for the last thirty minutes. That's all I can say without spoiling the movie. Well, what's it about? It's about a in just, a nutshell. It's about a family who the 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 father is a young father is 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 killed and then it's about a custody battle over his son between his parents and his former lover and oh. it gets really convoluted that's and that's about it oh sounds sounds like there's it takes a dark turn it takes many Oh. A dark turn yes yes, yes. Oh. so hmm. all right well Nicole maybe we won't choose that one Maybe we'll, uh, Nicole, maybe we'll figure something else out. But anyway, this those are our hammers this week. Yeah. If you've got a hammer, uh, you got someone you want us to talk to, uh, shoot us an email, justnotsports at gmail.com, or tweet us at justnotsports. We're going to take a quick break. We come back. 
Got Sports Illustrated's Richard Deitch, all locked and loaded, ready to talk about conventions. And boy, there is a lot to talk about with these conventions. Stick around. We will be right back after this. Joining the show right now is Richard Deitch. Richard is a writer for Sports Illustrated, where he has become the country's most visible sports media reporter and critic. His Monday column is a must-read, and he's also the host of the SI Media Podcast, where he conducts in-depth interviews with everyone from Rich Eisen to Rembert Brown to Katie Nolan. But if you follow Richard closely on Twitter, you know he follows politics as closely as he does sports. So with the conventions taking place, we're going to talk to him about just what the hell is happening in the political world and how it interests him both as an observer and a media critic. So, Richard, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? Well, being that this will probably be my last interview prior to me being fired. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, I should add, though, um, before we get into it, that um, congratulations on all the success that you guys had for your video uh, with uh, Julie DeCaro and Sarah Spain. Um, you know, having written a little bit about it, the fact that you guys did this, um, because you wanted to do something that you thought was interesting, having no idea it would go viral, and then the PSA ultimately winning awards. Um, you guys should be very proud of that. Usually the best things when it comes to some of the stuff you do, uh, at least in your work, is when it's organic and people find it um, without a marketing plan. They sort of just find it organically and it grows, and that's what this PSA was. So um, so full marks for you guys, and uh, and I'm glad to see that uh, that really took off. Well, thank you very much. I will say this uh, earlier today, Sarah was putting up, uh, she wrote about, um, you know, the Cubs trading for uh, Chapman from the Yankees and his history of domestic uh, right. violence. And I saw her feed and she's getting called the C word and she's getting, you know, threatened and, and, and Julie's in the same boat. I will say this. It's easy to raise awareness about a topic. It's very hard to enact change. So lots more work to do, but we appreciate the kind words and we really appreciate you writing about it um, at the time too. I mean, it was a thrill to get in your column. Speaking of people who can't, yeah, no problem. who can't cause change, let's talk politics. Yeah, right. So I want to, <laughs> I want to start with this, Richard. You're clearly someone who follows the political landscape closely. You've been tweeting about, um, you've been tweeting about, you know, Trump and what's been going on um, and the way media have been covering about uh, covering the entire circus uh, since long before it became apparent that he was going to be the nominee. So given that this is probably the most turbulent political climate, arguably, at least from my perspective, um, in decades, do you like um, observing it from your perch in the sports world? Or, or do you ever have that itch as a reporter um, that you were down uh, working the political beat and kind of in, in the center of it, uh, um, you know, on the convention floor hustling around? Yeah, a good question. I'd say both. Um, there's the observer part of me, the person who obviously watches a lot of television, given what I do, that's fascinated by the spectacle, uh, particularly the spectacle of how different media organizations have covered this election. I'm fascinated by how both the Clinton campaign and the Trump campaign has tried to use the press and has done so successfully. I'm fascinated by the fact that the Trump campaign has really showed that the media in this country, I think, has lost a lot of power in terms of its ability to influence. Uh, it's also, interestingly enough, I think, caused some great reporting over the last couple months where I think early on, particularly in cable news, um, someone like Donald Trump really got a free ride. Uh, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars 
in free advertising, and probably Hillary Clinton uh, getting a little bit of a free ride as well. So I'm fascinated by watching it all because it's it's a great reality show. Uh, there's a part of me that hates myself that I like the reality show so much because it's such an important thing. Um, I think people sometimes, because our political system is, you know, so disjointed and there's so much fighting that I think people sometimes forget to step back and realize that it really is the most powerful position on the planet, President of the United States, strongest country, country with the largest military, country where um, decisions can absolutely crater a global economy. And it's really not a reality show. But I'm not putting myself like over the mountaintop. I, I sometimes forget it too. I'll throw jokes out on Twitter. And, you know, maybe you just sort of, maybe that's a defense mechanism, but it's really serious stuff. And then finally, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I certainly like what I do, but there are times, you know, like I'm writing about something, uh, you know, a television move or, you know, some, a trend that's going on in sports television. I think to myself, it's so unimportant compared to what is going on <laughs> in the Republican convention and the Democratic convention that, yeah, there's a part of me that's like, man, I wish I was covering it. That said, uh, I have no doubt there are the reporters covering um, the conventions who probably think to themselves, man, like, you know, there's reporters out there in Syria or the Middle East, uh, people who are covering conflict uh, or civil wars who are really doing important work. So no doubt, no doubt that there are times when I kind of wish uh, I was covering it. If I was covering it, though, there's no way I would be as liberal um, with um, my tweets in terms of, and not liberal as <laughs> left. Right, liberal right. in terms of Honest. like, I wouldn't be mouthing off as much on <laughs> what uh, is in front of me on politics because I would want to separate my reporting, obviously, from my opinion. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's policies, what are they exactly besides <laughs> screaming about the ball? I have to, like, after watching a convention last week, he spoke for 75 minutes. I was in preparation for this interview today, pulled out. New Yorker from a couple of weeks ago. I was reading George Saunders' piece in there. He's one of my favorite authors. And there just seems to be a lot of yelling and fear-mongering and finger-pointing at immigrants. And it's, I mean, it is classic rise of fascism playbook. And I'm not trying to say that to, I don't know, put skew it. It's just like, man, I've read all this before, but I do we know what his policies are? Well, Gareth, in the words of in the words of Homer Simpson, I disagree with his uh, with his Mexico wall policy, but I agree with his kill Bart policy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I would say this um, to sort of be fair to Trump: if you go on his website, he does offer policy positions. He offers a policy position on uh, compelling Mexico to pay for the wall. He offers a policy <laughs> position on health care, U.S.-China reform tax reform. I know he does on the Second Amendment, too. So, like, if you're asking me if I believe that it is feasible in any economic structure to um, build a wall and then compel another country to, to pay for it, no, it seems... It, it, I mean, I don't even think impossible is the right word. I'm not smart enough to even understand what you would have to do sort of government-wise to get this going. <laughs> Do you need Congress to approve it? Like, I, I, I'm the first to admit I don't. Let's say you actually tried to go through with it. Like, you know, what, what would be the steps? And then what would be the diplomatic steps to get another country to pay for this? Like, you know, I, I, you know he's, I know he's talked about, like, canceling visas and, this, and you know, trade tariffs and all this other stuff. It, it's inconceivable it's going to happen. I mean, it just – at a certain point, I think 
he probably knows that too. So he does have policy positions per se. I just think mm-hmm. some of them are you know, like the like the wall is just they're just inconceivable. But you know, he's thrown out that he would roll back uh, the Affordable Health Care Act, and you know, he's very he's probably definitely got some sort of trade policies. But yeah, his, right. his as a general rule, his speeches, and I would say either intentionally brilliant or unintentionally brilliant, have appealed towards emotion, right? I mean, he's he, he a lot of his campaign is based on the emotion of we're angry and we want to send a message to someone that we want to be heard. And he's sort of tapping into that. And he's smart. You know, what do you, what do you sort of do when you want to play on emotion? Well, you use fear and you, 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 you create sort of a them and a lot of times for Trump, the them is immigrants or, you know, or the, or the them is the Democrats. Um, and so he's been either, I'm not even sure it was intentional, either unintentionally or intentionally, he has sort of been able to figure, figure that out. My, my sort of quick synopsis of where we are now is I think he ran into one of the weakest fields in the history of the Republican Party. I think the mm-hmm. de facto guy who I think everybody thought was going to be the nominee was a terrible candidate early in Jeb Bush. And he yeah. he got dealt Jeb Bush with a bad hand in that he got this guy, Donald Trump, who didn't do anything a conventional politician did. And I think by the time he sort of realized that he was cooked and that Trump had sort of branded him a certain way, I think, although I'm not positive, if Jeb Bush knew what was coming, I think he probably would have had some smarter advice to sort of tell him that the second Trump sort of bullies you, you got to you got to basically pound him down as hard as you ever pounded somebody down before. I think then the base would have um, rallied around Jeb Bush, and I think Jeb Bush would have probably become the nominee. But we all sort of saw what happened, and then um, you know it sort of whittled down and whittled down, and you know became Cruz and Rubio had their own issues. But I mean. You know, and again, I'm not saying that the Democratic candidates are world leaders, but if you look at that collection that Trump beat, you know, the, the guy didn't beat the the 96 Bulls and then the 2016 Golden State Warriors. You know, <laughs> you know, not late 1980s Knicks teams, basically. 1998 Seattle SuperSonics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he did it, and he did it, and he's the nominee, and he earned that. And um, you know, it's interesting. I don't, obviously, I don't particularly like Trump. Um, I won't go into why I don't like him. I just think he's sort of a classic con artist bullshitter. But I would have been picked, pissed off if the at the Republican National Convention they try to, um, you know, they try to have an uprising and 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 try to sort of take the delegates away from him and bring in another candidate because I think that would have even gone against what the rules that are established are. I mean, in the end, he won the nomination or he won the right to 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 be nominated, and so you know, I think. As a democracy, I think you got to keep them. But um, it does tell you something, though, about where politics are today. That a guy like that could emerge as the as a Republican front runner, and it says it says a lot of things to me. It says one something about celebrity and our obsession for celebrity now in this country, um, which you know I don't even say this sort of to be a wise ass. Like I, I I think somebody with that kind of Q rating or fame could probably take another run of the presidency four, eight, ten, twelve years from now, maybe win. Rock star, actor, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, and then the second thing is money. And that's the great divider, is that if you have money, 
especially early on, and you can kind of fund your own branding for politics, you, you can win elections, local, state, and we'll see if you can win a presidential election. Um, it's, uh, I don't know. It's an interesting time in this country. I, I'm surprised that we're here, but we are here, and I think we should acknowledge we're here. It's not the greatest um, options this year, but I would say, you know, in terms of my own personal opinion, I'm, I'd rather roll with somebody I feel is likely not going to destroy the country or the planet versus <laughs> maybe somebody who I don't particularly love everything about. But, you know, I recognize those people who don't agree with me and, and who might vote another way. And, you know, I, I respect that. That's, that's the country we live in. I think, I do think it is the best country on earth and I, I think we'll still survive, but, but man, I don't know. It's a weird time in this station. Let's, let's put it that way. Richard, I find it interesting that you spent the last five minutes rationally explaining your opinion. Um, do you feel like Donald Trump with his avalanche of lies strategy has really influenced? <laughs> I, and, and, I mean, that, that the, meaning the theory of like, I'm just going to lie so much that people won't know what to question me on because everything is a lie. But it seems to have bled over until into other elements of the Republican National Convention where um, a lot of the speakers, and maybe this is nothing new to politics, but um, they were talking about feelings as opposed to facts. And I don't think that's necessarily anything new. It's definitely an um, emotional peer appeal or even emotional blackmail, you could you could call it. But it, have you ever seen anything like this in, in politics? And how does it make you feel as a journalist who has to back up your opinion? Well, I would say this. Um, I think um, politicians on both sides um, either lie or play with the truth. Let's put it that way. I don't think that's just um, a Trumper or a GOP thing, to be honest. Uh, people have been writing lately about this idea that we're in a post-truth election, meaning that, um, that the public isn't interested in truth. And they don't want to hear truth. They're sort of listening to the emotion part of it, which you said. Um, that, to me, one, it's scary if that's true. I don't know if it is. But it, there's no doubt that in this particular election, people have just said stuff that's just blatantly not true. Um, I think journalists have to continue to do what they do, and that's to um, fact-check these candidates and to display – what the truths or what the accurate information is. I don't believe early on in this campaign, particularly with Trump, that was being done. Particularly, as you know, on CNN, who I've called out many times, who I want to love. But for a good seven months, they gave Donald Trump essentially free, free reign on their network and didn't call a thing out until eventually, I think, they got so much criticism for not calling it out, that eventually they started fact-checking it. You know, they went the other way. They, they sort of put lies on the air, fact-check lies on the air. So the only way to, to me to combat that is to just do what journalists and, and other you know, people sort of who are charged with finding facts or, or, or producing accuracy, and it's just to do it and do it really hard, to do it like with some significant passion in terms of like sort of display, to display it on whether it's your website or television or newspaper in in ways to attract and attack, and uh, in ways to better attract your readers. Or podcasts. Um, much more, I think, I think readers, yeah, where we, or podcasts. Like re people have to be hit over the head during this election on what's true and what's not. Um, 
we haven't necessarily been in that place before, but but the the attention span of a lot of people in this country is not great, and so I think media has a gigantic responsibility to pound the truth again and again and deal with the criticism from whatever other side that is that say you know you're biased to that side. Usually, you know what if you if the, if the facts as a general rule are on your side, you can take whatever heat people are coming at you. You just basically point to you know that's the scoreboard. This is this is the fact of this. This is right. this is correct. Um, you know, opinions obviously a lot tougher um, to to back up. Like if I, you know, Kristoff not too long ago, uh, I think it was Nick Kristoff wrote a piece that he said that you know I believe Donald Trump's a racist. That's not a fact. That's harder to back up. But if you say Donald Trump um, was sued by these people at this time, or Donald Trump filed for bankruptcy this many times, those are facts. Those are pretty hard to refute. So that's where I think the media early on did not do a good job in this election on both sides. And they're going to have to, over the next 100 days, really do a much better job on that. Um, will they? I think some will. Um, will the public, is the public interested in it? That's the more interesting question. Yeah, and I mean, like, not to pick on the Republicans, I think we're taping this on on the Tuesday of the Democratic Convention. It's easier to be to make absolute statements about what we just saw for the entire week um, in Cleveland, because uh, clearly the Bernie supporters are, um, you know, they're 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 like tearful, you know, sort of like panning across the stadium of an SEC game after the home team loses. Um, right. You know, their 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 view from the stands just seemed like really overdramatic to me. Um, let me let me say this though, because. There have been some memorable moments both in the in the conventions and in the coverage that I feel like are things that have the potential to be talked about 10, 20 years from now. Probably no more than what Ted Cruz did by coming out there. And, and in my opinion, Richard, I want to get your take on it. I thought he was trying to have his Reagan 1976 moment. Like this is the moment where I lay the groundwork for four years and I put a stake in the ground as the the dissident side of the party. He probably should have booted up that speech and watched it because like Reagan, for whatever you think about him, could at that time, especially earlier um, in his national political career, was a really powerful speaker. He was to the point. He was direct. He was not you know, he never put himself in a position to to seem divisive directly to Ford. And he was um, uh, he just kind of just kind of nailed it. Cruz, I think, tried to have his cake eat it, too. And boy, the booze and Trump walking in, like the circus atmosphere of it. What was your take on that? And what do you think happens to Cruz now as a political observer? Right. Well, first, I think Cruz should have had an NWO shirt on. Uh, <laughs> yes, on <the> exactly. <laughs> the folding chair, no. Terminology there, right. That's pretty much what he did, basically. Um, I think he made a gigantic political calculation, which was interesting, that he was going to basically gamble that Trump loses this election and that Cruz makes that speech and he becomes the front runner for 2020. Um, you know, based on the early polls, his calculation was off, but it's so far away that it's impossible to, to know. Um, to me, I think your point with Reagan is excellent. The, 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 Cruz didn't necessarily appeal so much to um, you know, our better angels or like, you know, the, the, the light on the hill, basically. He, he trying to figure out even who he was trying to appeal to, if he was trying to appeal to the Republican base or if he was trying to appeal towards, you know, the sort of the moderates uh, who float between both the Democrats and 
the Republicans. I think it was the one thing I'll say is it was ballsy to sort of appear and make the speech. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, although I end up, and I'm sort, I realize I'm sort of going away from this. To me, the more honorable people are Romney and Bush, both Bushes, in fact, on this, who from the jump said, we're not going to endorse this guy. We're not going to his convention. We're going to stay true to what we've always, um, you know, we're not, I'm sorry, I should say this. We're, we're not going to capitulate and get some either airtime at the convention or support this guy after we pounded him uh, for this many years. Now, Bush may still vote for, you know, they all made that pledge that they were going to vote for the Republican nominee, whoever won. But there's, you know, I feel like there's some nobility in that, that at least they sort of like stay true to, you know, they didn't get beaten up by Trump like Cruz did. Uh, I'm sorry, like Rubio did for months, and then it basically, you know, make a 90-second speech at his, uh, or a video at his convention. To me, that's just, you know, that really is nonsense. I think the worst of all these guys is Christie, who I think at this point, um, you know, he would basically put a top hat on and drive Trump around New York if he could get some kind of... <laughs> if it pays. <laughs> he, 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 he really Don't sold take out the bridge. Yeah, he sold out everything. <laughs> I think he's the worst politician in the country. I'm a little biased, obviously. I have a lot of relatives in New Jersey. His approval rating is 26%, about wow. as low as it gets. Um, but yeah, that was pretty interesting. I, um, you know, I, I, having talked to some friends of mine who are in the GOP uh, or who vote, um, you know, traditionally or always have voted Republican, they didn't see this. They didn't necessarily walk away from that Cruz speech of seeing Cruz as an antihero. So if I had to guess, I don't think it was a game changer for him. That said, could he still sort of be a 2020 candidate? I'm sure he will. I don't think his politics, by the way, um, can win the whole country. Personally, I think he's, um, I think he certainly can win Texas again. And I think there's some states in the South, like he did in the primary, that he can win. I, I, I can't see him ever taking the Rust Belt. There's no way that guy wins California, New York, Massachusetts. I, I don't think he's got enough of a coalition to win nationally. So, um, so I would say that it 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 didn't game change Cruz's trajectory, but I also don't think the I'm not buying into the, the the people who write that he's done. He will never again have a role in the Republican national conversation. I don't buy that either. I think um, you know I think he took his shot. I think for some people they sort of will see him as a hero, and I think other people will see him as a traitor. But it it doesn't. It didn't go one way or the other, I think, enough to really um, game change. I do think if Hillary Clinton wins this election, and quite frankly, I honestly don't know who's going to win. Um, yeah, you said that on Twitter. I thought it was interesting how you said, living in New York, you have to remind yourself. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm yeah. the first to admit that I, I, I live in a place which is obviously going to vote Clinton big. And there's a lot, you know, the New York Times has published where I live, and Daily News is liberal, and there's... You know, I, I, again, I live in a, a Manhattan, which is very, very highly democratic. Brooklyn is highly democratic. And people have a certain orthodoxy here. So I don't pretend that I represent the country because I don't, quite frankly. Um, I've spent a lot of time. I lived in Michigan. I have spent time in the, in a lot of different states. So um, I have a sense, I think, of, of how different it is. But I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty self-aware. I, New York is the outlier. Um, I think Chicago is an outlier, too, to be blunt. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So I don't know who's going to win the election. I do know that if Clinton wins, I think who would run in 2020 against is pretty fascinating because I think Trump has game changed the Republican Party for the next, uh, you know, 12 to, to, to 20 years. And it'll be interesting to see if he does lose, who would emerge in 2020 and what type of candidate would emerge to try to, um, uh, to, to you know, who would be very different. Like, would it be a similar version of Trump, maybe just not as coarse? Or, um, or are we going to get really like these radical kind of candidates now who are total anti-politicians like Trump? That's pretty interesting. I don't think the trajectory of a traditional Democratic run is going to change. You know, 2024, 2020 could be Cory Booker type. That's not such a different archetype. But, but, but Trump has game-changed everything to me. And so that I would have no idea who would run for 2020. Maybe it's a traditional guy like Scott Walker. Well, listen, he got blown out this round. Or, you know, who knows? Maybe it's... Uh, you know, Kanye West. I have no idea. Well, okay. So speaking of game changers, and according to the bylaws of this show, we have to ask you not about sports, but your uh, your interest in hobbies. So I'm going to ask this purely on the political side. But the big game changer in the last few elections was 538, and this is the first election where we are seeing. I think first of all, 538 is now an ESPN entity. And analytics has become a mainstream. It, it's gone across the media whether Nate Silver is at the New York Times. He changed the game in the past, but what role do you see 538 playing in the next 100 days from a media standpoint? And has that been watered down by the rise of analytics? Good question. Um, Nate Silver was absolutely a game changer when he was at the Times, partly because of the publication, but obviously a big part because he, um, he called – he was, you know, he was so incredibly uh, prophetic in terms of what happened that he created himself a huge brand, and then obviously leveraged that brand to 538. Um, you know, Silver obviously did not see the rise of Trump. He's been criticized for that. He's given reasons as to why that was. And you know, listen, it's like a, it's like a guy bets in Vegas. Sometimes you're going to get on a roll, and sometimes you're not. Um, mm-hmm. What I have seen is that there's a lot of places now doing what. Silver does. They may not do it. They may not have his exact model, but the Times has continued very successfully with its election coverage, sort of in its analytics election coverage without Nate. Um, you know, you see the real clear politics uh, types of sites. They're out there. There's a lot of sites that do now what Silver does. Um, ESPN is a, I don't know what their traffic is, and ESPN's going to put out, you know, their job is to put out press release after press release that sort of gives you good news on all their sites. But Right. Anecdotal, anecdotally, this is just my opinion. 538 as an ESPN entity has not popped. It just it does. It's not a conversation starter the way Nate Silver was a conversation starter in 2012. That that is, um, that is my opinion. But I feel like it's a pretty fair reported sort of take on, on that. Um, I don't see Nate Silver and the 538 people floating the airwaves um, the way I did in 2012 when Nate Silver was kind of a rock star being interviewed everywhere. So I think they will still continue to do excellent work. Um, and it's a good site. Don't get me wrong. Their projection models are really interesting. Um, but the, the, the game has changed in that I think the audience is going to, you know, 25 different places when it comes to um, election year analytics. Silver is one of them, but I think, you know, the New York Times is one of them, and Real Clear is one of them, and then individual sites or individual outlets in each state. So 
I think they'll do some good work, but by no means I think are they somehow the, the thought leader in the space. And it'll be – it's always interesting to me when Silver tweets something to see the reaction of him making sort of a projection or a thought um, because that, I think, gives you a little bit of a sense to how people are reading Nate now. And four years ago, he was sort of treated, I think, as, you know um, – uh, you know, Daenerys from Game of Thrones. He could do no wrong, basically, going over the narrows. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, he's still liked, but it's a little different. You know, you sort of look at him a little differently. I think the more interesting thing when it comes to 538 is what's going to happen to them in 2018, late 2017. Mm-hmm. Is ESPN still going to invest in all that talent, all that labor? Are they going to keep this thing going for, you know, two, three, four, five, ten years? I don't know. They say they are, but, you know, they once said that about Grantland. So, right, um, right. we'll see. I, I think, this, is, this is veering dangerously close to sports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I don't want to make it sports, but, like, I mean, in, in, it's as a business play, I think I think it makes ESPN smarter. What I don't know is it mm-hmm. makes ESPN. What I don't know is, it, is, it, is does it make ESPN money. And that, for them, is usually the bottom line. Right, right. Uh, shifting topics a little bit to something else, some another very serious topic, uh, celebrity speakers at the conventions. <laughs> um, <laughs> Antonio Sabato Jr. and Scott Bayo are the biggest were the biggest celebs at the Republican National Convention. Check out the list for Democratic National Convention: Lena Dunham, Jason Collins, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Eva Longoria, Alicia Keys, and Demi Lovato to name a few. Richard, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I do, well, I would get the Republican. I'm trying to, th- I, my sense is that the Republicans might have had a couple artists, uh, singers as well. They, have, have, they had an avocado they, farmer they, listed as a celebrity They had Third speaker. Eye Blind and they trolled them. <laughs> they like were talking about, um, <laughs> they did uh, have right. You can sit Dynasty dude, a, uh, is a Duck Dynasty dude go under celebrity? Yes, you're right. Uh, uh, Will, that, Willie, I think, is was his name. I can't remember his last name. Yeah, I should know Willie that Robertson. guy. Um, yeah. Willie Robertson, I think, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let's put it this way. I, I'll, be, I'll be very honest. If Lena Dunham didn't speak at the NCA, I'd be fine with that, you know? <laughs> Enough. Yeah. <laughs> They're not all home runs on the DNC side for sure. I mean, Sarah Silverman, Sarah Silverman was funny, but last night she had, had poor Al Franken sitting up there just trying to kill time in the worst possible. All you have to do, they would have been better off just like staring at each other. Instead, they like go create all these media headlines that just fuel the fire of the the, the division between right, the two right. camps. Like, what are you thinking? But she that, did drop the most important yeah, exactly. Baba Booey of all time. <laughs> yeah, right. That was good. Yeah, she saved right. herself. I, I will say this. Um, there's a couple of people on that list I'm fine with. You know, I think Alicia Keys is awesome, uh, and that's cool. I saw Elizabeth Banks speak today. I thought that was from a, um, from the heart. The, 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 of course, the Democrats are always going to get, you know, they're going to they're going to win the Hollywood votes traditionally, so they're always going to be star studded. The one thing I would say is, and I'm sure the DNC, you know, I don't have their emails, of course, because I'm not Russian, but I'm guessing that in the midst that the <laughs> Of their conversations, they they were smart enough to like not, if you follow me here, kind of over celebrity it because th- that is something that I think would turn off the people that they need to win the election. That's independent voters. You you can have a couple celebrities popping in and 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 I think um, 
especially those who are politically active, to sort of say something with meaning. But if you make the convention too much of like the incestuous nature of the Democrats in Hollywood, I think it, this is just my take, I could be wrong. I think it turns off people. So yeah. I think you got to be really yeah. judicious, in my opinion, to, um, you know, be careful with that. But, uh, you know, I mean, you guys, uh, you guys are in the base in the Midwest. I mean, you know this. There, if the Republicans wanted to load up on sports stars to speak at conventions, they could easily, I mean, you know, whether it's Jack Nicholas or, uh, you know, Ditka was talking, I, I mean, I'm not talking about active sports stars, but like, you know, Ditka, Nicholas, there are a ton of NASCAR guys who are very conservative, who are driving now. There are a ton of football players who absolutely, uh, there's a lot of quarterbacks who are GOP members. So it's not like if the Republicans really wanted to push it, I think they would get some, you know, they would get some really interesting people. I think some of this had to do with Trump and the Trump group and that, you know, how we ended up with Scott Baio and uh, Antonio um, Sabato. It just sort of like was such an oddity. But that's the one thing I would say is I think celebrity endorsements can have value in in certain places, and I think – there are times when celebrities can absolutely help you get out to vote, particularly if you've got a band that's sort of politically active or hot. You know, like, you know, like, you know 15 years ago, if sort of you two jumped on what you were doing, um, you know, that would be incredibly, incredibly uh, valuable. You know, Will I Am, I think, absolutely helped the Obama campaign like massively. So, if it's the right artist, I'm ashamed to admit I bought that that song. You should be. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I'm just, yeah, I don't mean to filibuster. I just, I think I would be careful. To, you don't want it to become like just a parade of celebrities after celebrities. Because the fact is, you know, as much as Sanders and Clinton talk about the 1%, like the, those celebrities are the one percenters too. Right. You're really going to make the appeal, in my opinion, to the middle class and working families. Um, that's who I'd rather hear from than Lena Dunn. Do do you think maybe maybe the minority, but that's just me. Do you think maybe Trump just wanted to be the biggest celebrity at his own convention? Honestly, I think there. Um, I don't know if that was discussed, but I I would think somewhere sort of deep inside Trump, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean the um, the you know Trump on the Trump did things so differently. For one thing, he he, he was visible every night of the convention. Uh, even the one day he wasn't there, he came out the first night like you know the Undertaker and WWE. So he understands theatrics, and he definitely wanted to be the biggest star. Now, do I think if um, you know some mega star had come up to him and said, "Listen, I want to speak to convention, Donald," I think he would have put him on there because I think Donald Trump knows the value of endorsements, and I think he knows the value of celebrity. But yes, I think um, I think that entire convention was. Um, was selling the Trump brand and um, and the people who were very mo- were most effective at selling the Trump brand, I thought were his kids. So I think that's what that convention was about. Where I think in the Democratic convention, they're going, I think, to try to sell ideas through some of their more visible uh, political uh, faces, from Obama to Biden to Bill Clinton. Um, to be very honest with you, having we're taping this on Tuesday. Uh, Michelle Obama basically could speak to me every. She should close every. <laughs> she was great. I don't yeah. think basically, I don't think you could basically top what she did Monday night. To me, that was, you know, that basically you just drop the mic and walk off the stage, and the convention just ends there. 
Um, I have no doubt Biden and Obama will be excellent at professional speakers, but um, we'll see. I'm talking to you guys on Tuesday. I'm going to say that the best speech of the convention will be Michelle Obama's um, when that convention closes by Thursday. Yeah, I mean, she was she was phenomenal, um, and I'd be hard-pressed to, to think that somebody else was going to eclipse her. All right, you've given us a ton of time. Let me ask you a couple quick-hit questions on the way out the door here. Who Who do you feel like feels more trapped this political season, Mike Pence or Brian Williams? <laughs> um, well, I think Bra- that's a good question. Uh, you know what? I mean, I think Mike Pence, he's trapped only in the sense that he probably can't <laughs> say, but you know, the, the reward at the end could be the vice presidency, perhaps the presidency. So that's, you know, that's pretty good. I think he, he took I think he was smart to accept uh, Trump's offer. Brian Williams just feels just so miscast um, in the current role that he's playing. Uh, on MSNBC, it's he, he's, uh, and I think listen, I think Brian Williams is is a he's a, he's a talent broadcaster. Um, I think he's funny or can't be funny, but he he's he's anchoring the coverage in such a I don't know if you guys agree with me, like such like a '80s '90s kind of voice of God anchor kind of feel that it doesn't it just doesn't feel current with the time, and it's odd, and it's very clear that he was placed there by um, you know Andy Lack and. And they're they're trying to sort of re- give him a sort of a second chance after he uh, you know he lost his big gig, and so I don't I, I think he's probably happy to have a forum. It's just it's it's weird because MSNBC in the end is really an advocacy network. They can claim they're not, but they are. I mean Hayes and Maddow, Joy Reid, they're all advocacy people, even if even when they're doing it within journalism. And Williams is just so different than those guys that it's a it's a very odd mix. For me. I agree with that 100%. Watching Monday night's coverage, especially when Sarah Silverman and uh, Al Franken right. yeah. were up there. And I just, like, I saw a lot of comedians on Twitter, and it was, they all said it, but Pat and I was all said it best. And just like, Brian, stop talking about comedy, my God. You know? Right. And it's just listening to them. It was the ultimate, hey, let me tell you this funny joke I heard. Like, A, we all just heard it as well. And B, you can't, like, tell, explaining the joke is the quickest way to ruin humor. And it just, ugh, it was, that was cringe-inducing. I think you put it best with the 90s voice of God. It's not the coverage we needed. Well, my theory on Brian Williams is that he always wanted to be a late-night talk show host. I always felt like he right. wanted to be, a, like, he. I, I really believe in my head that he thought, CBS is going to ask him to succeed Letterman because he was always on that show. He was always like the funny anchor. He loved his 30 rock appearances. And like, I always thought he, he just figured I'm going to just jump networks and be like an all around entertainer. I don't know what you think about that. And Richard. he got beat out by a mock news person. <laughs> right. Like his own fake shadow. Like it's <laughs> fascinating. I agree with you. I think, I think, I, I mean, you know, whether he really thought he was going to get the Letterman job or not, I don't know, but I think, I think there's a part of Williams that always wanted to be a late night comic. I don't think there's any doubt about that, given his appearances. I think as a um, network lead, network news anchor, he's a funny guy when he's a guest. Do I think he could do a Stewart or um, or Colbert to uh, do no? And yeah, his sort of trying to sort of diagnose Sarah Silverman was 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 a little rough. And uh, right after that segment, forced me to watch Raw because I needed to get a little rest. <laughs> oh, so you. <laughs> Raw, so you put back on the Ted Cruz speech then. <laughs> yes, I did. I watched some old uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash videos to find myself with the Ted Cruz. All right, last question. Trump wins. 
Which tabloid do you pick up first, Daily News or The Post? Pravda is what I pick up, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> got a Russian to covering, uh, or, or, or TASS, whatever the news agency is there. Um, I would pick up, actually, every newspaper. I'd be fascinated by how, um, and not just even in my city. I, I, I really would just, I'd be, re- I mean, forget which about. Headli- I mean, like, which I'd, headline do you want? I'm going to hold you to this. Like, where do you go? Where do you, you, you click in and you want to see the headline first? What, do you want to see the conservative view of that or the liberal view of that? Well, I think both the Post and the News will have phenomenal headlines if you want. So I would, I, I mean, it, it honestly would be a tie. Um, I would be very curious to see how a place like the Times and the Post play it because they're ostensibly trying to sort of objectively offer you headlines, but they have a POV for sure. I mean, the Washington Post just basically said, this guy is unfit to lead. Um, so I'd be really fascinated by those two. But I'll, I'll, be, I'll totally be honest with you guys. This is exactly what I would do. No bullshit here. If he wins, one of the first things I would would be to go to. Um, there's a couple of people I follow, or if I don't follow them, there's on their list of mine who um, compile all the foreign newspaper headlines, especially the um, the ones in the UK. That's what I'd be interested in seeing. I'd be fascinated to see how a Trump election victory would be playing in England, in Spain, Germany on their headlines. That would be fascinating because I don't think they would hold back how they felt about it. So those headlines would be really fascinating and probably more so compared to the states. Yeah, no, it's going to be a fascinating election. I mean, Richard, you've given us so much time. We really appreciate it. We know you got a thousand things going on every day. I want to tell everybody to follow you on Twitter. You, you'd be in my list of, of must-follows. I love You share a lot of great uh, thought-provoking articles um, from all sorts of media. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, people should tune in at Richard Deitch. Uh, and, and definitely read your uh, read your, your thoughts on media. Um, you get the Monday column, the podcast, but also uh, breaking news uh, when, when it happens in sports media. Uh, so thank you for joining, and uh, we will be following the circus all the way through November, my friend. You got it. Thanks for the invite, guys. I enjoyed the conversation. Okay, here's a movie pitch for you. It's a sports movie featuring real superstars from the NBA. And it's a sci-fi flick about a futuristic digital world plagued by a deadly virus. And it's a romantic comedy where Carmelo Anthony plays a matchmaker. And it's a medical drama where Scottie Pippen can wake people out of comas. And in the middle, it takes a break to show you at least a minute of Dwight Howard highlights from that one year that he played for the Lakers. <laughs> well, let me tell you this. If that's your pitch, tough luck, my friend. They already made that movie. It's called Amazing. If that's your pitch, seek help. It's called there Amazing. It was filmed and released in China in the year 2012 or 13. Varying <laughs> reports on that. And all the wackiness that I just described really happens. This movie is damn near nonsensical, but it is fascinating. So we're going to do our best to break it all down. So, Adam, I'm going to start with you. In 30 seconds or less, explain the plot to our listeners. I was going to ask you for this, but okay. <laughs> so, um, Adam, this was your idea. From, from what I can gather, there is a video game developer. There, well, let's point this out, that there are three black guys being the basketball players. 
uh, cast 20, of Asians. 20 seconds. And uh, one white guy who apparently played college basketball with Frank Miller. Uh, basic premise of this game, of this movie, is Frank Miller is the head of a software development company. He is in love with a girl named Eileen in the office. There's Ten another seconds. character named Bing Shan who develops games and discovers a crucial glitch, which is the character in the video game takes over the game, which is some somewhere between anime and basketball. I did a really terrible job explaining that because I don't understand what this movie is about, Brad. <laughs> I'll give it to you. A Chinese company makes an immersive basketball video game known as The Sixth Sense. <laughs> it's sentient and infected with some kind of virus, and so players then become infected by that virus when they, they kind of dock into it, a la The Matrix. So to beat it, a guy gets the virus to fall in love with him and commit suicide, <laughs> shockingly. <laughs> and uh, Mello and Dwight Howard are there, and Scottie Pippen um, has magical powers and can pull people out of comas. Much better. Much better. <laughs> Gareth. What? Who, how did this get made? I want to ask this. Gareth, um, how much do you think they got paid? Dwight and Mello got paid to be in this movie. I don't know, but I would like to... Uh... Do you think they got paid, or was it just sort of like yeah. the NBA was like, you do this for us? I think us. the NBA made them do it. No, they can't make you go to China and be in a movie. They got paid. They got money. Yeah, but how much? I bet I it had to be a million lot. plus. I think that all three of those guys, well, I think two of those guys got caught for PEDs, and this is the way they got out of suspensions. Mello spent uh, more time on a flight to China than acting in the movie. I guarantee they shot that thing in like 10, 10 Really, oh, yeah, it was hard all one working take. hours. That was so, all first takes, that's for sure. But here, if you look at it, the movie's budget was listed at like nine, ten million dollars. I don't think they're getting there with the, well, I do think it raises interesting questions about the cost of animators in China, yes. <laughs> um, but I, I think this whole thing should be categorized under when growing the game goes wrong, you know what I mean? Like, every Every sports league is talking about growing the game and how to expand in China, and I give the NBA credit for taking a swing at it, but, ooh, man, was that unwatchable. So can we talk about the performances of the pros in there? Because I agree, it was really rough, but I think Carmelo actually did the best job of the three. He seemed fairly natural on camera. He seemed to play the buddy of the the, the guy who was the head of the video game company. Uh, Frank Miller, played by Eric Mabius, in his last <laughs> Eric, role. Eric Mabius, you no, you may remember him as Resident the closeted Evil. gay guy from Cruel Intentions, is oh. what I remembered him from. And then he was in Ugly Betty. I think he was yes. in Resident Evil as well. Yeah, probably. Um, so Frank Miller, the character in the movie, apparently went to Syracuse or played at Syracuse. I think they played together. With Carmelo Anthony, yes. You don't remember Frank Miller, Hakeem Warwick, and Mello leading them to the 2003 NCAA championship? I don't know, man. Syracuse always has that one white guy who's perpetually a senior, <laughs> so he might have been that guy. Yeah, he was like, who, who was the guy from a couple years ago? Before then? Jerry Dugan. Yeah. I think he's a comic book writer. Jerry McNamara, that's who it McNamara. was. McNamara. He was essentially the McNamara guy. Yeah. yeah. I thought Mello was great. There's a whole scene. I will say this. It's very subtle, but I want you, Joe, Joe's going to boot up something right now, and we're going to play a clip um, of Mello doing some acting. See if you notice anything change about his voice. That right there is the Pearl Tower. Tom Cruise stood on that tower right there on Mission Impossible 3. 
You are from Syracuse. You must know Frank and Arlene. Yeah, we were very close at Syracuse. Frank and I was playing basketball for the school. We won the NCAA championship together. We were schoolmates in high school. She was so popular. Yeah, she was so popular at Syracuse too. Frank was putting the full court press on her. Was <laughs> that supposed to be mellow? His entire voice changes. It's so clearly via like uh, AR or uh, voiceover. And, Sounds like uh, Adam yeah, yeah, Ballard was given a job in China. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right, ADR is when the actual actor replaces their voice. That is not ADR. <laughs> it's so great. And the Kate, everything about it is totally different. And they're like, we do not have time to fix this in post. Just one go. of the guys from Pro Star just jumped in there. Yeah, Mello was like, I'm not coming back to China for take two. I am gone. This is the worst. I don't know how y'all yeah. fooled me into doing this, but fuck no. I'm not recording one more line. In the scene where he's coaching, Mello's coaching the kids in a basketball like kind of camp, He's like yelling at them, like, Festa, Festa. Like, he's yelling English with a Chinese accent. And their accent <laughs> is like, it's it like if, if you, Brad, were coaching a black basketball team <laughs> and you put on an accent to try to motivate them, like, oh, come on, y'all. Do it. Festa. Can you do it? I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do a, a, a stereotypical, uh, um, uh, mm. Person of color accent. Sorry. I was really hoping to get Jesse Jackson after us. No, no. <laughs> Gareth, what would you think of Mello in the movie? I mean, the, I love the scene where he's playing matchmaker, like trying to hook the f- hook Frank up with that girl. By the way, nobody knows what we're talking about. This makes no sense to anyone listening. But it's so beautiful that way. Well, he, he, I, I think Adam makes a good point because, all right, spoiler alert. I did not finish this movie. <laughs> well, then wait. Then you missed the hour-long soliloquy he gave. <laughs> like, Mello, it was beautiful. I cried three times, man. <laughs> now, that said, this thing is available on YouTube for anyone who wants to watch it. It is covered with a lot of graphics. There's just Chinese writing flying everywhere in watching this thing. So, yeah. No, Listen, I actually think... Look, Mello's not the worst part. He's not the worst part of anything uh, he's in. He's got a little bit of personality. He knows how to, you know, present himself. He's got a good smile. He's good on camera. Uh, he's better than Dwight Howard, though. I don't know what that's saying oh, at this yeah. point. Oh, yeah, wait. We'll get to that. Let's just jump <laughs> into Dwight, too, because Mello sure. plays a pretty standard role. Dwight's role, far harder to actually make sense of. So they're doing a press conference to announce this this virtual basketball game. game that this you can play. This is basically play. something you or I would do. We'd get Dwight Howard, we'd fly him in on a beam of light, and we'd have him talk about his love of basketball. He flies in in a Superman cape, and he's really pushing the Superman thing because they're like, oh, Superman. And then as soon as he touches ground, highlight package starts. And not like in a... Not in a like, oh, look at the TV, like they're playing highlights, but in like that weird, like in like over the top. In. Yeah, like in over the top, like when Stallone, all of a sudden it becomes a documentary and he's talking about arm wrestling to the camera. It's like that. Like all of a sudden it's just like a sports center is playing highlights and you're like, what? It's like, oh, we, in, hey, uh, Chinese audience, in case you don't know who this guy is or how good he is, here's a clip from him playing with the LA Lakers. And then here's a clip from the NBA All-Star game, which by the way, they used three clips of the All-Star game during this movie, which I thought found was bizarre. All the same All-Star game. Probably rights. They probably had like only a limited amount NBA of team rights. NBA bought into this thing. Wouldn't you think they'd open up uh, with a little better who knows? access to their I mean, archives? look, th- th- this movie, I- I- I'm not going to lie, guys. 
it might have had like that, like one or two other holds. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. The first thing first, I was Adam and I have worked in 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 marketing PR for for you know combined you know number of years. Oof. I was professionally offended at how the guy who is the antagonist, or he's really the protagonist, trying to warn everyone about this virus, runs up to the stage on a press conference that is like a press conference that has like hundreds of people screaming, like like a, like Bieber fans, like screaming. They're so excited for this press conference. Um, and then this guy walks up, takes the mic in front of, you know, Jerry McNamara's character, and um. And Dwight and this other lady, and just like says, by the way, I think this could be super dangerous. And no one stops him. There'd be like fifteen me's tackling oh, that guy. If you you try to bum rush one of my press conferences, I will clothesline. Yeah. Oh, you would do that. What, what is it? The do the naked uh, the, rear naked choke. <laughs> the rear naked choke. <laughs> but I wouldn't let go when you tap. You'd be dead. <laughs> I was like, I was like, how does this happen? And then meanwhile, Dwight. Fully wearing his cape. Oh, yeah. And he's just like watching it happen. What he says. What he what does he say? Oh, well, we can we can either play the clip or I'd be happy to reenact it. You know what? You know what? Let's let's reenact. Why don't we why don't you go ahead and give us a dramatic reading as Dwight? So Howard. I missed his first couple lines because they were just inaudible. Uh but I missed them so, because I did not watch them. Someone <laughs> asks him, and he th- I'm I'm not exaggerating when I do this read. I may be underselling it. Uh, someone asks him about the Superman dunk and how he did it. And he says, you know, I don't really know. But what I do know is if you dream high, you fly high. And that's <laughs> where amazing happens. Basketball touches your soul and it gets deep down in your <laughs> spirit. This is a dramatic reading. That is. I don't uh, think it's that dramatic. It's far more dramatic than what you actually get in the film. I was I not like really? to thank I Dwight Howard so. for being on the he podcast. Gyrates his, he gyrates his hips forward as he says, it gets deep down in your soul. He was okay. I like Mello's understated cool more than I like uh, more than I like Dwight just being Dwight. Could I, I get to when he ta- the next scene where he talks about, for some reason, he's on the court with. Uh, I think it's Bing Shang's character talking about his love of basketball. Oh, please do, Adam. Uh, and he says, just think about basketball being a girl. You got to hold her. You got to caress her. You got to kiss her. You got to make her feel love. And when you do that, she'll make you happy. <laughs> Dwight, there's a reason you haven't been uh, up on your game because you're a bit too busy fucking your basketball. <laughs> it has the most incredible pickup basketball move I've ever seen, which is the dude stands on the ball, then slides through the opponent's legs with the ball, and then picks it up and makes a shot. And that doesn't happen in their virtual reality crazy world with the, where the computer virus kills herself. Oh, you mean Blackie Chan did that? Uh, the the oh. actor is named Blackie Chan on IMDb. Is, and he's Chinese. <laughs> Not, uh, I don't know what's going on with that. I, I want to say this. Um, was the video game, like the video game opponents were all like sexy women. Was that empowering for female athletics or 
hyper offensive because they were so overly cartoonishly sexualized. <laughs> That's what I thought. I just want to yeah. check in case everyone had a more progressive view of that. But they all could dunk. They could dunk. Um, and then the translation. I couldn't tell if they were speaking Chinese and then is all ADR or not. I could I could tell you this. There are translations such as, take a seat, girl. Let's enjoy the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> that was jarring because it's all like, it's subtitled. A lot of it was subtitled in both Chinese and English. And it, like I said, there's just a lot going on. Uh, apparently, there were some problems during production because there was there were casts obviously from the United States, but also from China, South Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. So a lot of different languages uh, on that set, and um, none of them uh, maybe good Chinese. I couldn't really. Tell. Well, Mello nailed his Chinese lines of "fasta, fasta." <laughs> I have a follow-up question directed at Brad. Do you still think Dwight Howard should have distractions? I, look, I've been saying forever, <laughs> Dwight Howard needs, I need a lot more of this from Dwight. Like, I thought for sure he was going to have like an hour long, an hour of this movie where he's just doing cool stuff. And he was doing three minutes. He had way less scenes than Mello. In fact, I leave more disappointed in Dwight. Dwight, get out there and own China. This was your year in the Lakers. You were not too busy to do this, okay? You were not, like, hitting it hard in the gym that season. I really I expected more from him. I, I, I'm going to say this, guys. I left impressed with Melo. I thought he, he had a charm in his scenes. Mm-hmm. I thought he was good. Scotty, a little wooden, but we'll give him a pass. That's just kind of who Scotty is. But, Dwight, I just need to see more, man. For you to become the global icon you want to be, I, I had to see a lot more. Adam's disagreeing. Yeah, you should stop acting and doing anything. <laughs> yeah, he did some hip gyrations and stuff, but I, you, now listen, you go ahead, listen to my reenactment and go watch the movie. You tell me if I'm exaggerating. I believe it was somewhere around the fifty to fifty-five minute mark. Well, I think you said it right there. Go watch the movie. <laughs> the NBA movies in China, it's where amazing happens. And with that, <laughs> guys, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with some distractions in one second. All right, we are back. Uh, as you know, if you listen to the show, uh, we talk a lot about how media and general managers and coaches give players a hard time when they are, air quotes, distracted by the things that they like outside of their sport. Uh, but hey, life is just work and distractions from work. So right now, we're going to let you know what's been distracting us. Perhaps you want to give it a shot. Gareth, what's your distraction for this week? My distraction this week is a book. It is a book called The Dog Stars by Peter Heller. Uh, it was recommended to me by my wife. also came up on the maybe one season Greg Rosenthal and Anthony Jeselnik Vanity Project RJVP as a recommendation on that show. That was a great listen if you want to go back a year. In nice, whisper. nice whisper. Nice whisper. <laughs> that was their tag. That was their thing. Uh, it's actually a look at what would happen in the case of a possible Trump presidency, it is a post-apocalyptic world where a flu has wiped out the entire human population. And there's a guy living on an airport, uh, like this private airport, almost akin to living on a golf course. 
outside Denver. And he and another guy live there and he just kind of flies around with his dog. And one day he gets a transmission from outside his range where he can fly there and back in a day. So he has to decide if he's going to leave the sanctuary of his hell or his airport and fly out into the world and see what is going on in the post-apocalyptic post-Trump hellscape that he is living in. So it's a beautifully written book in all seriousness. It's gorgeous. Uh, Heller has the soul of a poet throughout a lot of allusions to poetry throughout and great nature writing. Uh, so highly recommended the dog stars. Excellent. Adam, what's distracting you this week? Um, well, I don't Here, I have a question. Can watching a sport be a distraction? Uh, let's, if let's it's see the CrossFit game. G- uh, yeah. Okay. That's not a mainstream sport. I mean, there, okay. Watching, watching strongest man contest would be a distraction. Yeah, there is something that makes me feel a lot of shame, yet a sense of comfort about watching people work out. Now, the CrossFit Games, I watched three nights of the CrossFit Games, the men's competition, the women's competition, and the team competition. Uh, These people are unbelievable. Can Can you do a handstand walk even for... One step because I can't, Brad. I cannot. They're doing it for 400 meters. It was uh, really impressive. I don't really have anything intellectual to say about it, except there's something inspiring about watching the fittest people on earth push things around and me sitting under my air conditioning with iced tea watching it all happen. Is there like a YouTube <laughs> rabbit hole you can fall down with like videos like this? C- CrossFit? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. Okay. No, it's good. That's what we're looking for. Adam, quick question. Yeah, man. Sweetened or unsweetened? Unsweetened. I agree with you there. Iced tea? A little bit of lemon. Always unsweetened. Yep. Unsweetened with a little lemon. The largest, the biggest tragedy in modern um, beverage industry trends is the difficulty of finding an unsweetened iced tea in a bottle at any gas station. Uh, Yeah, I don't know why sweet, like sweet tea, there's a time and a place for that. It's called the South. Any time of day. It's because America is fat and lazy. That's why we want everything with like sugar in it. That's it. Yeah. Anyway. That's that's the next podcast, guys. <laughs> All right. Um, my distraction, I, I'm going to get a little bit serious. Not too serious, but I want to read you guys something. It's a passage of a book about terrorism. Okay. No single individual was the hero of the movement that swallowed up so many lives. The idea was its hero. It had its theorists and its thinkers, men of intellect, sincere and earnest, who loved humanity. It also had its tools, the little men whom misfortune or despair or the anger, degradation, and hopelessness of poverty made susceptible to the idea until they became possessed by it and were driven to act. These became the assassins. Suddenly one of them with a sense of injury or a sense of mission would rise up, go out, and kill and sacrifice his own life at the altar of the idea. That is a passage from a book called The Proud Tower, written by Barbara Tuckman, about an era of terrorism that existed from 1894 to 1914. Wow. That is the 20 years before the start of World War I. And I bring it up because, you know, it's a political season. Terrorism is happening all across the world, especially these lone wolf attacks. And they are scary as hell. And, you know, it's something that 
we all work in major American cities, um, but wherever you work in America or across the world, you're seeing images of these attacks. And I, I feel like we are, as a, as, a, as a people, our natural inclination is to think, well, hell, the, the world's just coming to the end, or, you know, this is just a whole new wave of terror like it, it, that I just don't even want to deal with, or how are we ever going to figure this out? I think in times like these, I'm comforted reading history and trying to find parallels that, hey, look, these are, as terrible as this is, these are issues that we have faced for centuries. That as long as there has been um, establishments, there has been anti-establishment ideas, and there have been people who have taken that to hyper-extremes and deadly extremes. And that's not to say that that makes me feel any better about something bad happening, but I, I do think that humanity has always found a way to persevere uh, against terrorism. Humanity struggles much more mightily against um, ignorance. And so I just think if you're going to, if, if what's bothering you is, is the state of the world or whatever, I would encourage you, no matter what is bothering you, pick up a book, pick up a documentary, something historical and that, that is about the same subject and read it. And maybe, much like me, you might feel a little bit comforted in, in knowing that um, we as a, as a human race have always found ways t- so far to, uh, to stick around. And it's inter- I think that's an interesting point because, I, as you said, I think one of the big themes of this political season is things are worse than ever. People are right. more unsafe than ever. Violent crime has actually gone down in America every year since 1990. So you have to wonder uh, what's the reality of things and, and really, like people in our role, what is the responsibility of the media and the way they are presenting it? People. Yeah, and look, it's not to say it's going to fix anything, but just you know, like I said, I I get I get comforted reading history and just you know saying, hey, look, these are interesting things that uh, interesting ideas that have happened in the past, and maybe we can learn from them. So, all right, those are our distractions this week. That's our show for this week. If you did not like it, remember the immortal words of Malcolm Jenkins talking about bow ties on this very show. The beauty, my friends, is in the imperfection. Thank you to all of our listeners, the beautiful and unique Sparkle Ponies. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Just Not Sports. Email us tips, thoughts, or topic, justnotsports at gmail.com. Right now, we're going to end with some shout-outs. I'm going to give a shout-out to Richard Deitch, Sports Illustrated's amazing uh, media critic. Uh, just a, a great follow on Twitter about the political scene and, and, and media coverage of it. Uh, had a lot of fun talking politics with them. Um, and for people that are going to criticize us for being too anti- Republican. Just remember, we're taping this during the Democratic National Convention. We have not, we, we did needle them for what we saw on the first night, uh, but we just haven't seen the full convention spectrum. I'm sure we'll be, we will be revisiting this topic in a lot of ways. It'll be worse next week. Right. We'll be revisiting this topic in a lot of ways between now and the, and the, uh, the election in November, I'm sure. Uh, Gareth, any shout outs? Yeah, I wanted to thank Dwight Howard for coming by the podcast and reenacting that scene from Amazing. <laughs> uh, I know it's the off season; he's probably on vacation somewhere. But to be able to take that kind of time out really shows the commitment to that sort of that project and how important it was to Dwight and everybody at the NBA and NBA China. So thanks a lot, Dwight. Adam, wait, is this episode forty? Yeah. Congratulations, everyone. Episode 40. Episode 40. So related to that, I want to shout out one of our most loyal listeners who listens every week for her name to be shouted out, Meg Palalis. Meg. You've listened now to all 40 episodes of Just Not Sports. Thank you for your support. You are a great friend. 
an Instagram model. Yeah. Uh, and a Cincinnati Bengals fan. We thank you so much for your support. Double yeah. Meg Meg is like an Instagram uh she makes she she's the reason why I don't put up my own photos because every time she posts a new photo, she's like, Hey, just woke up on a Saturday and it's just like all well lit, like fresh flowers in the back of her room, cat cats looking perfectly at the screen, and you're like, I tried to take a picture of my daughter eating a Sunday, and I'm pretty sure she's pooping out, <laughs> like pooping out of the back of her outfit. <laughs> so thanks for the insecurity complex, Meg. Uh and as usual, shout out to my boy Uzi, Jeff Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, Ron Mac, and as usual, my other cousin Ron. And Meech, uh, thanks for the help with uh, with my Mac last week. Really, uh, it really helped to clean out the cash. Uh, got the speeds back up. So uh, that's our show. In the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, rapper extraordinaire, booty, booty rappers, rappers, stay booty, stay booty, stay amazingly booty. Together right now.